0: Hi everyone. I'm Dr. Joni Johnson. Welcome to Unmasking Your Murder. I'm a clinical and forensic psychologist, private investigator, and true crime writer, and the host for today's episode and every episode. Today, I want to talk about Lois Reese. This name might be familiar to some of you because back in 2018, it was all over the news for a couple of reasons. Number one, One consistent theme that kept popping up in the media was that this person does not look like a murderer. And, of course, we can kind of go, well, what does a murderer look like? Well, first of all, it was a woman. She was middle-aged. She was a grandmother. She had been married for a long time. So she didn't fit, I guess, the profile, if there is one. And we know that there really is not of a murder. And then second of all, part of this story played itself out on national TV as it was happening. So police were actually looking for her. There was a nationwide, I guess, a woman hunt in this case, all it was happening. And so her name and her picture were plastered all over the news before she was caught. A little bit about her background. Lois Witt which of course was her birth name, was born on February the 28th of 1962 in Rochester, Minnesota, the home of the world-famous Mayo Clinic. She was the fourth of five children. Her dad was an IBM engineer. Her mom was a stay-at-home mom. We don't know a lot about her childhood. I didn't see any mention of abuse or neglect, but there was some mention that her mom was a hoarder. And we, don't, we didn't know a lot about hoarding back then, and we're still learning a lot about it, but I can only imagine if you're a teenager, it would be really embarrassing to bring a friend over to your house and have total chaos in your home, even though we know that there's some mental health issues associated with it when you're a teenager, you don't care about that. and we. We also know that Lois did not bring people home. She kind of avoided uh, bringing any friends around her house because she was so embarrassed. We also know that she attended Mayo High School and she dropped out after the 11th grade, which is pretty unusual. I looked at the graduation rates of that high school and it's like 92 percent. So we don't know exactly why she dropped out, but we do know that it was not the norm now. The other part of the story that we have to talk about right away is because he will be such a central part of the story is her husband, Dave, who was also born in Rochester, Minnesota, and he also attended the same high school as Lois. He graduated in the class of 1981, and he was a very liked and a very likable person in high school. He was described as being kind of a prankster or a jokester. And this reputation, I think, continued through the rest of his life, um, even as an adult. His friends and his family would comment on how much he liked to laugh and what a great laugh he had and how much he just enjoyed humor and playing pranks and those kind of things. So in the spring, before he graduated, he decided to join the Navy. And so he enlisted and he was stationed in San Diego, California. He and Lois married on September 17th, 1982. He was 19. She was a few months older. She was 20. After their wedding, they got really busy. They had three children in four years. They had Billy first, and then they had Brianna, and then they had Brayden, who was the youngest. Initially, Lois was a stay-at-home mom. Dave was in the Navy. Then after he left the Navy, he uh, was a forklift operator at a company called Crinlow, which is a manufacturer of some kind of medical equipment. And then he opened a bait and tackle shop, which he called the Bait Box, where he sold fishing supplies and live bait. Lois started an at-home daycare center, and that seemed to go really well. And then 2005, they moved to Blooming Prairie, Minnesota, which is a very small town, which we'll talk about. So Dave could pursue this lifelong dream that he had of being um, a waxworm farmer now i don't know a lot about fishing i like to fish but i will be the first to confess i cannot bait my own hook if there's something wiggling at the end of it but from everything that i've read and what i can tell these waxworms are highly prized especially for ice fishers and they're a favorite among this class of fish called panfish trout catfish crappie bass etc um, so they moved to this small town of Blooming Prairie, as I mentioned. Um, a little bit of background about this really adorable little town. It was um, incorporated in 1874, although they had already had a working post office since 1868. Today, it's, um, the downtown is listed on the National Register of Historic Places, it was It's at the intersection of four different counties. And so before Prohibition, it was a hub for selling alcohol. And in 1917, it was the only wet county of these four, meaning it was legal to sell alcohol. And during Prohibition, the word on the street is that several tunnels were dug underneath the businesses on the main street so they could make and sell moonshine. Now, this is according to the Mauer County Historical Society. Another really interesting fact about this small town, and when I say small, the population is under 2,000 people, and this is my personal favorite, is that their high school is on just about every list imaginable for schools with the most unusual mascot. Blooming Prairie athletic teams are the awesome blossoms and their mascot is a giant flower is that not the cutest thing you've ever heard feel the power of the flower is kind of their slogan I love this in the 1900s apparently there was a rival community called Austin and somebody wrote um, an article in the paper that said the boys from blossom town are in town and from there this uh, you know nickname kind of stuck with them and so they developed a mascot. Now, in 1979, apparently, they didn't think the fighting flower was fierce enough. And so they um, had somebody draw a more ferocious one, which, well, I'll, I'll let you decide. But I think it's just adorable <laughs> anyway. So they became the awesome blossoms. and I had to include that because in true crime, we hear so many grim facts and grim statistics Any chance to put some really cute material in there makes the cut to me. So even though they're also just interestingly enough, even though they're the awesome flowers, their colors are black and white. So it's kind of an interesting, uh, really interesting little town. The population has been very stable over the past for 30 years. I think, as a matter of fact, since 1990, more people have actually moved out of Blooming Prairie than moved in. So it's a pretty stable, small community. And Lois and Dave seem to fit right in they had no problem making friends at all. And the small community also seemed to embrace them. As a matter of fact, they had only been in this community for less than a year when on February the 16th of 2006, A fire destroyed their home and killed their beloved cats. And they never found out what happened, um, what started the fire. There was no foul play suspected. Dave, as a matter of fact, allegedly wondered if he had been doing some wiring, if he had made a mistake and he felt really terrible about it, but they never knew what happened. And the community just rallied around them. They took up a huge collection for them and they supported them in so many different ways. And before long, Dave... And Lois and their three kids were back in a brand new three-bedroom, two-bath home. So there's a happy ending to that story. Lois soon started another home daycare. And Dave built his waxworm farm. And it was within walking distance from their house. So here he is, you know, at home, having breakfast, getting up and walking to work every day. And this family just seemed to be thriving. Um, And just so much seemed to be going right with them. They were active in the community. Lois joined a bowling league for women and she made a lot of friends that way. She also played in a pool league. And apparently, according to one of her friends named Jennifer Peterson, sometimes the two of them would sneak across the county line about 45 minutes away to diamond joe's casino which was in northwood iowa where lois loved slot machines so this was really just small town usa and in many respects, I think at its very, very best. Lois was popular not only with her bowling league and her pool league. She was popular with the parents whose children that she kept. Um, She oftentimes would have breakfast sandwiches for them when they came to drop their kids off. Um, She also became the legal guardian of her disabled sister, Kimberly, in 2012. Kim had had some physical and some mental health challenges. And so the decision was made for Lois to kind of take over her finances and her decisions. In 2014, Lois closed her daycare. Her kids had gotten older, they were grown, they were starting to have um, kids of their own. And apparently she decided, you know, I'm just ready to be a doting grandma. And she was. Uh, all three of her kids said that she showered her grandkids with gifts and also just spent a lot of time with them. And Dave's employees also said that, you know, Lois would sometimes, you know, three or four times a week would just show up at the office with home cooked lunches um, for the employees just out of the kindness of her heart. And apparently her lasagna was was one of the favorites among the employees there. So in general, in the small town, People described her over and over as somebody who was thoughtful, who was fun-loving, and somebody who was generous. And Dave, her husband, was equally, if not even more popular. He was active in the servicemen's club. He was on the board. He helped them with their finances. He um, liked to bowl as well, although apparently not as much as Lois did. But he loved to play pool. And at least a few times a week, he would go to one of the local hangouts. There was like the pizza cellar. There was a back room of J&H liquors. And he would have a few beers and play pool and really shoot the breeze with a lot of his buddies. He loved being a full-time worm wrangler. Is it not, is it not a great job to have a worm wrangler? And he loved owning and running Prairie Waxworm Farms. And his employees loved him. He had three or four of them, and they tended to be um, young men in their late teens or their early 20s. And they all described Dave as somebody who was way more than just a boss. He was a mentor. He was a father figure to all of them. Um, he took them fishing. He would put gas in their trucks. And he was even known to give them some extra money when they needed it. Um, and you know, another thing about Dave, not surprisingly, given the business he was in, he loved to fish. One of his best friends, Denny Clark, had known Dave for 30 years, and they met when Dave came over with a mutual friend to Denny's house to help lay some carpet as a favor. And that apparently just epitomized Dave as somebody who was always willing to lend a hand to help somebody, even somebody he didn't even know. So during this carpet laying, Dave and Denny bonded over fishing, and over the next 30 years, they spent Hours casting their lines together on the Mississippi River. They even entered fishing contests and were so successful as partners that they won some money and they were interviewed a couple of times on television. So, you know, looking at this kind of history of their marriage, at least on the outside, the rhythm of their lives seemed to just be in sync. So when on March the 8th of 2018, when Dave dropped by J&H Liquors, it was a Thursday evening, all of his friends said nothing was different. It was exactly the same as it had been on countless other evenings. Some beer drinking, some pool playing, some shooting the breeze. And again, half a dozen of his friends who saw him that night said they didn't notice anything that was wrong. But that was the last time any of his friends saw him alive. So we don't know everything that happened after March the 8th. We do know that on March 11th, Dave and Lois had gone to watch one of their grandsons play basketball. And some of the people who knew Dave and Lois and were at the game remembered seeing them arguing. And they were arguing, I guess, pretty publicly, and they got up and left. The next morning was a Monday. Lois walks over to the waxworm office or the shop and tells the foreman, Tom, that Dave is sick and he he's not going to be in. Now, David had some stomach trouble in the past, and it was severe enough at one point that he, he was in the hospital for a while. So this wasn't totally unexpected or out of the norm. So Tom just thought, well, Dave's stomach is flaring up again. Um, he thought it was a little bit odd as the day went on that at least Dave didn't text him or 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 call him because Dave was this kind of hands-on boss. And even when he had been not feeling well in the past, they were communicating in some way. Monday goes by, Tuesday goes by, and Dave is still a no-show at the office. Wednesday comes, Thursday comes, and Thomas began to think something is seriously wrong. Now, some interesting things happen. He does get some text from Dave, which was mildly reassuring to him. But as he later said, it would have been more reassuring if the texts had actually sounded like they were from Dave. So it was a running joke at the office that Dave was somebody who had a small phone and giant thumbs and was a terrible texter. So he didn't like to text, first of all. He would much prefer to pick up the phone and call. And when he did text, it was almost like he used telegraphic speech. Like he would just say the words to get the message across. He would oftentimes make grammatical errors he wouldn't use punctuation it was just uncomfortable for him and so he would leave out anything that he didn't have to put in that text to get the message across these texts though were full sentences and they were grammatically correct now at the same time this whole week is going by Lois is stopping by the shop every day and she's updating them on Dave's illnesses She's reassuring them that he's, she's taking care of him. But over time, these reassurances are starting to fall on deaf ears. I mean, Dave's employees know Dave and they know that something is seriously wrong. However, on Monday, March the 19th, and this is the second Monday without Dave in the shop, and you can imagine how concerned the employees are, Lois stops by and says, "I've got some great news. Dave is feeling better, and the doctor has cleared him to attend this fishing tournament um, in Illinois. And he and his friend Denny had been planned to compete together as partners, and she said, he's going to be resting for the rest of the day, but he's going to be leaving tomorrow, and so you know he'll be back the following week." So Tom came in the next day early, expecting to see Dave out getting this white Escalade is a Cadillac that he normally would drive and he would um, tow the boat and he would go and pick Denny up and they would go to these tournaments together. But he doesn't see anything. The house is dark. The garage door is closed. And he's just like, what is going on? You know, this is not right. So all he can think of to do is just watch this tournament, which is going to be on TV and hope to see his boss, Dave, and fishing partner, Denny, step up on stage to show the judge the fish they had caught during the tournament. So he is anxiously waiting to see Dave on the stage. But when the announcer calls Dave and Denny's names on TV, Denny is the only one to step up in front of the cameras. That was it for Tom. So now it is Friday, March 23rd. So he talks to a friend and he gets him to call the police. And by that evening, two officers from the Blooming Prairie Police Department arrive at Lois and Dave's house for a welfare check. And the police are kind of slowly circling the house, trying to figure out, you know, is there, is, is there anything broken? Is there a sign of a break-in? What's going on? And they notice an open bathroom. Now it's March in Minnesota, and it's way too cold for anybody to have the windows open. And when they shine a light, a flashlight, through that bathroom window, they see the body of Dave Reese on the floor of the bathroom. Now this is 12 days after he was last seen alive. So they go in. They look at Dave and they find out that he was shot twice, once in the chest and once in the back. Other than this, there is nothing out of order. Nothing appears to have been taken. The house is neat. Everything seems to be in order except for Dave's body. His body was covered with a white blanket and he had apparently been dead for several days investigators, just by the position of the body and the way the shots were, thought that maybe the first shot was fired when Dave was walking out of the bathroom. They thought he might have been ambushed. And also a bullet had gone through his forearm, which sometimes can mean a defensive injury. So somebody's getting ready to shoot and you put your arm up like this and the bullet goes through there. It wasn't clear if he had been shot the second time in the bathroom or in the closet just off to the bathroom because his body was kind of in between both of them. And he was just 54 years old. Now, in this small town where everybody knows everybody else, word quickly gets out and people who knew Dave and Lois were flabbergasted and they were initially terrified for Lois. Where is she? I mean, has she been kidnapped? Is somebody holding her hostage? They had no idea. But as things began to progress, it didn't take long for their fears for Lois to turn into fears of Lois. Because like in so many relationships we, that we talk about, where things seem perfect until you peek below the surface, cracks had been there for years, and these cracks had ruptured. So it turned out, first of all, that in 2015, three years before, Lois had been under investigation for taking or stealing basically $100,000 her disabled sister's money and gambling it away. Her sister had inherited about $200,000 when their dad died and Lois had pretty much stolen at least half of it. Now, Lois was never charged They did an investigation and she apparently admitted to what had happened. Um, But under pressure in 2016, she was, of course, removed as a guardian of her um, disabled sister. When people found out about this, they were just shocked. Now, The fact that Lois liked to gamble was not necessarily a secret, but what was a secret, I think, was the extent of her gambling problem. She had done a few odd things in the past. So, In in July of 2016, she had just disappeared for three days, and Dave had no idea where she was. Apparently, after three days, she just turned back up and acted like There was nothing weird about it. Everything was fine. Dave had been so worried that he had reported her as a missing person, but she shows back up. She goes, you know, what are you so worried about? I was visiting friends in Minnesota or whatever. And he then discovered later that there's some new debts that Lois has incurred. Also, some of the couple's closest friends knew that recently Dave and Lois had been fighting bitterly about money. Rumors were flying that Lois had been gambling a lot recently and that she had been losing. At one point, she had asked several employees of the farm for donations. She said that she wanted to buy Dave a golf cart because I guess it was a kind of some, a distance for him to go back and forth. And of course, his employees who loved Dave generously contributed, but the donated money just disappeared. Lois had also asked several people several of their friends to lend her money, which when Dave found out and he did just it totally embarrassed and angered him. And he had actually gone to these friends and said, please do not give it to her anymore. It's just like gasoline on the fire. You can't do that. Her son later said that his mom had actually gambled away a $500,000 inheritance from her father. And friends also said that Dave just before the murder, had recently reached the end of the rope in terms of Lois's gambling and telling her that he was not giving her any more money unless she earned it. So he said something to the effect, apparently, that, hey, if you want some money, you can earn it. You can come work for me and I'll pay you for it. But the gravy train has stopped. Now, Dave's employees also, as part of the initial investigation, told investigators something that was really troubling to everybody. They said that they had seen Lois drive off in the white Cadillac Escalade two days after Dave supposedly left for the fishing tournament, and they hadn't seen her since. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, this is the car that he always drove to these fishing tournaments, and he used it to carry the boat. So Lois becomes not only the prime suspect, but the only suspect in Dave's murder, and they start looking for her. They were able to track her her cell phone to the Diamond Joe Casino. But when they arrived the next day, she was gone. The lead investigator in the case, Ben Bowl, also learned that over the previous week, while Dave was a- supposedly ill, Lois had deposited two business checks missing from the Warren farm, totaling about into her husband's personal account. And then the day her husband's body was discovered, she had actually written herself checks for that same amount and put it in her own uh, bank account. So she is really the only suspect in her husband's murder. And this small community is just reeling from this. And of course the investigators were kind of going, where is she? So they put out a public statement naming her as a person of interest in the death of David Reese. But again, everybody is going, where is Lois? Where would she have possibly gone? Well, it turns out that she was driving 1600 miles southeast all the way to Fort Myers Beach, Florida, where she would meet an innocent woman who was visiting there herself. Now, Lois had a connection to Fort Myers Beach. She'd been there before. One of her best friends from Minnesota named Tess and her husband were snowbirds. They spent the winters every winter in Fort Myers Beach. And they had actually invited Lois and Dave to come stay with them. And they had done that. Tess was actually there when she heard about Dave's murder and that Lois was the prime suspect and and that nobody knew where she was. Now, oddly enough, her daughter had called her very recently, within a day or so, and said, you know, Mom, I got this phone call from this woman named Stormy Liberty, and she was asking for your Florida address. Now, Tess's daughter didn't know Stormy Liberty. The name wasn't familiar to her, but she assumed it was one of her mom's friends. The woman sounded extremely friendly, according to Tess's daughter, so she gave her the address. But now she wanted to give her mom kind of a heads up that, I just want to let you know this person called. So now it's Monday, April the 2nd, and Tess is in the garage of her Fort Myers, Florida home when she sees a white Escalade Cadillac slowly drive by her house, turn around and park close to her house. And a woman with a blonde ponytail and a pink shirt comes walking up, looking down at her notepad. Tess told the police later that her eyes met this woman and the woman said quickly, wrong house, wrong house. And she turned around and went back and got in the car. And Tess said, but it was Lois. I know it was Lois. I recognized her. But Tess wasn't sure that Lois knew that Tess had recognized her. And of course, she was hoping that she was not. Tess is terrified by this because she's like, she's hearing that, you know, Dave is dead, that Lois is on the lam or they're looking for her. And now Lois has shown up 1600 miles away from the crime scene at her house. And Tess is wondering, is she coming to hurt me in some way? So Tess is terrified. And she is just hoping and praying that Lois didn't realize that Tess recognized her. She goes back inside the house and she calls the police. But Lois was long gone by the time they got there. So the police ran a check on Lois and found out that she was only wanted in Minnesota for theft at this point. So they, I think they kind of thought, well, hey, this isn't our problem. This is Minnesota's problem. Call the cops up there. So she does, and there's kind of a runaround and nothing happens. Just two days later, and only a few blocks away, Lois Reese would make friends with somebody else. A woman named Pamela Hutchinson. Pamela Hutchinson was 59 years old, and she had traveled down to Fort Myers Beach from Bradenton, Florida, just a few hours north. But she wanted to help a longtime friend of hers with a particularly difficult grieving process. Her friend's husband had recently committed suicide, which is just horrible to have to go through that grieving process and to lose somebody in that way. Pamela had arrived in Fort Myers Beach on Tuesday, April the 3rd, and she had checked in alone. Into a condo in a timeshare complex. Now, Pamela and her friend Donna had dinner that evening and they also met for lunch the next day on April the 4th. But when Donna invited Pamela to have dinner again that evening, that Wednesday evening, Pamela said, You know, I'm meeting with a new friend. I just made a new friend since I've been down here and we're going to have dinner. A middle aged woman that she had just met, she tells her, Pamela, has just met Lois Reese. Pamela had originally planned to drive back up to Bradenton on Thursday, April the 5th, but apparently she had a change of heart. She and Lois hit it off so well that she changed her plans, decided to stay another night. And that evening, they had an early dinner at a place called the Smoke and Oyster, which was a, a tourist place. And then they headed back to Pamela's condo. We don't know exactly what happened between Lois Reese and Pamela Hutchinson, although security cameras at the condo, which actually were working. I know so many times they're, you know, they have cameras, but no, they're not, they're not on or they're broken or whatever. But they tell some of the story. So there are images of the two of them laughing and talking together, and they're having such a good time together. There are uh, images of them getting out of the elevator. There are images of them sitting together in the hot tub. Pamela's friend that evening texted Pamela from the beach, but she never heard back from her. And also Pamela's realtor texted her some paperwork because Pamela was looking to buy a condo. So she had been renting for a year and she was all excited about having her own place. They traded a few texts during the day, but nothing after seven o'clock. And the realtor later said, well, I was kind of wondering if maybe Pamela had gotten cold feet or whatever. So the next morning, Friday, April the 6th, someone calls from Pamela's room down to the kind of reception area. It's about 8 30 in the morning and said, hey, I'd like to stay for another three days. I'm having so much fun here. I've made some new friends. I'm going to go out on their boat. Could could you just maybe use this credit card and um, charge the next three nights on this credit card? Well, they're calling from Pamela's room, a condo, and she says, okay, that's fine. And she identified herself as Pamela to the manager of the complex. The manager, whose name is Lauren Russell, of course, now believes that it was Lois. There is no evidence that Pamela Hutchinson was alive after Thursday evening. And security footage shows Lois Reese going in and out of the condo several times by herself on that Friday morning. Shortly after 11 a.m. on that Friday, she withdraws $5,000 from Pamela's account at a local Wells Fargo bank using Pamela's ID and calmly making small talk during this transaction. By the afternoon, she was heading north in Pamela Hutchinson's white Acura. The white Cadillac Escalade would later be found about a mile from the condominium where Pamela was staying. It was Tess. Who eventually helped police start putting all of these pieces of the puzzle together in terms of the, of the um, Cadillac, in terms of Lois being in Fort Myers Beach, Florida, and in terms of, as we'll find out, Pamela's murder. On Monday, April the 9th, the complex manager, Lauren, found Pamela's body. She was just checking condo units for a possible water leak. And there were some kind of eerie similarities between Pamela's murder and Dave's murder. So like Dave Reese, Pamela had been shot in the chest with a twenty-two caliber handgun. Like Dave, she'd been covered up after she was killed, although this was with a towel as opposed to a blanket. Like Dave, um, Pamela was found on the bathroom floor in the condominium. Her toothbrush was in the bathroom sink, which led investigators to believe that potentially like Dave, Pamela had been ambushed. Towels had also been stuffed underneath the door in an effort maybe to mask any smell. And they found a pillow with a bullet hole through it on top of Pamela, apparently used as some kind of a silencer. Also, as with what happened after Dave's death, Lois took Pamela's car and money. So 59-year-old Pamela Hutchinson, who was described by everybody who knew her as this loving, smart kind-hearted woman who had made the trip to Fort Myers Beach to help out a friend of hers through a grieving process had been murdered for her identity and her bank cards. She was chosen simply because she looked enough like Lois that Lois thought she could become Pamela. So from Florida, it took Lois three days to make her way to South Padre Island, Texas, where she was headed. In between, she made a stop at a Louisiana casino. Meanwhile, authorities are putting all this together. They are talking to the authorities in Minnesota. They now know that Lois is wanted for a murder in Minnesota. They've now linked Lois with Pamela Hutchinson's murder, and they are on the lookout. So they sent out this nationwide alert on television describing Lois as someone who looks like anybody's mother or grandmother, but urging the public, do not be fooled. You need to consider this person to be armed and dangerous. They set up a national hotline. They posted a billboard in several states that read wanted murder with her picture and her name on it. Now, while all this was going on, and this is over the course of a few days, Lois is setting up her new routine on South Padre Island. Her last attempt to use Pamela's bank card had been rejected. She had won $1,500 at this Louisiana's casino that she stopped off at, but that's not going to last her long. So she's got to figure out what she's going to do next. So she checks herself into a Motel 6, and she starts visiting local bars and restaurants. For more than a week, she is under the radar. In spite of this nationwide man or woman hunt, people are not connecting the dots, which kind of makes sense. I always wonder when you see these bulletin boards, you pay attention to them, but you think, would I really connect what I'm seeing here with a person in front of me. And of course, some people just don't watch the news. So anyway, for more than a week, she goes around and she's making friends at these bars and these restaurants. And most of the women that Lois is befriending, and she's befriending mainly women, were like Pamela. They were middle-aged. They were single. They were traveling alone. They might look a little bit like Lois or look enough like her. So one evening, she plops down beside 65-year-old court reporter Bernadette Mathis, who is sitting alone at the bar of this place called Liam's Steakhouse and Oyster Bar. She introduces herself as Ladonna, although she says, you know, call me Donna. That's what I go by. And the two of them begin chatting. Lois tells, or Donna, tells Bernadette that she had recently lost her husband and that she had come to South Padre from Florida because her family just wasn't letting her grieve the way she needed to. She just needed to get away and think about things. And as a matter of fact, she was even thinking about relocating to to South Padre Island, just to getting out of Florida completely. Bernie later said the conversation was so easy and so natural, she literally felt like she had met her new best friend. So Bernie, as she was known to her friends, was also widowed, which is something they kind of bonded over. And she told Lois that she lived over the bridge on the mainland in Rancho Viejo. So the two chatted and they exchanged phone numbers. And not long after this, they had dinner together. During their dinner together, Lois mentions to her that, you know, I'm just not sure that South Padre Island is the right place for me. And Bernie says you should take a look at my neighborhood. And she invites her over to her house, an invitation which, not surprisingly, Lois accepts. So Lois gets in the car with Bernie. They drive over the bridge to Rancho Viejo. And Bernie goes on and on about how safe the neighborhood is because Bernie's concerned about safety. And she assumes that Lois is a single woman now, will also be concerned about that. So when they get to her house, she points out all the security cameras that she has installed in her house. She even mentions that, you know, one time there were burglars that were trying to break into these houses and they were caught on surveillance and were captured. Later, Bernie wondered if it was all the talk about her security cameras that literally saved her life. They ended up talking for hours Spending time in the hot tub. Does it sound kind of familiar? And the next morning, oh, Lois left over. And the next morning, Bernie takes her back to the hotel. But Lois says, hey, let's get together again. So they make plans to get together for dinner over the weekend. Luckily for Bernie, Lois is caught before their next get together. She was spotted by this eagle-eyed restaurant employee, which I have the ultimate respect and admiration for, named George Higginbotham, who told police later that he can't remember a name, but he never forgets a face. So Lois is arrested and she ends up, you know, fast forwarding to the end of the story. She ends up pleading guilty to murder in Florida as well as into Minnesota. And she will serve out the rest of her life in Minnesota with life without parole. I think one of the scariest things about this whole story is what police officers found when they searched Lois's hotel room after her arrest. So in addition to Pamela's hat, credit cards, sunglasses, and checkbook, they found two handguns and a black bag with bullets, a holster, duct tape, and rubber gloves inside. I mean, that sounds like a kill kit, basically. And one of the guns was later identified as the gun that killed Dave and Pamela. They also found some self-help books on mental illness and coping with it, which brings us to the psychological issues in this case. Was Lois Reese mentally ill? Now, I'm not going to try to diagnose her I've never spoken one word to her. I've never evaluated her. I've never read a psychological evaluation on her. So I'm just going to be looking at what the evidence suggests from the outside looking in. So here are some things to consider in us trying to figure out this potential answer to to this question. Lois had told friends in the past that there was a history of mental illness in her family. And there was. Her older sister, as I mentioned before, her name was Kimberly Sanchez, was disabled. This is the person who Lois had been appointed guardian for. She had bipolar disorder as well as Parkinson's disease. We've already mentioned that her mom um, had a hoarding problem and she was eventually committed to a state psychiatric hospital. And in March of 2019, a year after all this happened with Lois and she was charged with double murder, her sister, Cynthia Leah Grund, was charged with assault after running over her 37-year-old son with a full-size SUV and causing severe pelvic injuries and resulting in surgery and all kinds of problems. At the time of her arrest, Cynthia said that her son had been an alcoholic for years and that she and her husband had tried everything to help him. And she was very angry at him. She said he, she had told him to leave their house. He had been refusing to leave the house. And at one point he laid down the driveway and just said, why don't you just run over me? And she did. And, And explaining herself, she said, he didn't think I would do it. I did it. He'd been drinking all day. I gave him a chance. She was charged with second and third degree assault, criminal vehicular operation, and domestic assault. Now, according to a 2020 article in the Atavist magazine, and I couldn't find other verification of this, on August the 5th, 2019, Cynthia quarreled with her probation officer and that afternoon, she purchased a clothesline from a hardware store and hung herself. So I think there is some pretty good evidence that there certainly is mental illness in her family. So let's talk about Lois herself. In December of 2015, a few months after Lois's theft from her sister Kim was exposed, Dave came home for lunch from at a Dairy Queen with a co-worker, and he asked the co-worker to drop him at the house instead of the worm farm so he could use the bathroom. And when he walked inside, he found Lois unconscious in a chair. She had overdosed on pain pills and Dave had to call 911. And first responders performed CPR. This was a very, very serious suicide attempt. This was not like a cry for help or or some kind of a gesture. A helicopter had to airlift her to St. Mary's Hospital and she spent almost two weeks in the hospital. So after two weeks, she comes home and she kind of lays, lays low for a while. And then according to her friends, she kind of acted like nothing had happened. Also, when she had disappeared for those three days back in July of 2016, Dave had told law enforcement then that Lois had a history of depression. So I think we could make the argument based on the things that were reported that she potentially had a history of depression. But the bigger question is, did that have anything to do with Lois's crimes? Lois's son said that something in his mother's brain snapped at the time she killed her husband. There was some speculation even that she had had some kind of a mental breakdown. So according to the state's attorney office, Texas officials claimed after her arrest that Lois was having a psychotic break or having psychosis and refused to take medication. So psychosis can stem from a number of severe mental health disorders. It is a diagnosis in and of itself. So commonly bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or schizoaffective disorder, which is somebody who has kind of symptoms of schizophrenia and a mood disorder. Individuals with any of those can have psychosis or psychotic symptoms. And psychotic symptoms include being out of touch with reality. Individuals often suffer from things like auditory hallucinations, uh, delusions, disorganized thinking, disorganized behavior, and so forth. I think the important thing to remember here is these are not subtle signs, and they're not something a person can hide or a person can turn off and on. Another important point to remember is that these severe mental health disorders, such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, tend to appear In late teens, sometimes early 20s, and bipolar disorder almost always manifests itself by the age of 35. Now, there's some indication that less than 10% of individuals who have bipolar disorder may have later onset and that it can potentially occur in people over the age of 50. But we have any indication that Lois has bipolar disorder? Well, we have some evidence that she has a history of depression. Psychotic symptoms can occur when somebody is severely depressed. They're more likely to occur when somebody is in a manic episode. And when somebody is in a manic episode... The person typically appears, for example, will go for days without sleep, will have an excess energy level, Could be very irritable. When they talk, they talk so rapidly it's hard to understand them. They may have grandiose delusions, think they're president of the United States or that um, you know they're the, the son of God or whatever. So these are things, again, that typically result in somebody being disorganized in some way, not somebody who is... Putting together a plan to murder somebody and then steal their credit cards and their identity and go to another place and potentially repeat that. When we look at Lois's behavior, it appears to be methodical and planned. Now, it might not be a good plan. I'm not sure what she thought the end result was going to be here. So we can argue that her plan wasn't good, it wasn't going to be successful, but it certainly appears to be methodical and have a logic to it. She hid her husband's death for several days by giving excuses and the excuses she gave made sense. Given his medical history, she chose her second victim because she looked like her. She concealed evidence and she bought items that could help her, you know, in further crime. So again, while her plan might not have been a good one in terms of her getting caught people who met her as a matter of fact, over the course of her crime spree, consistently described her as outgoing, charming, sociable. She made friends. I mean, she talked her way into two strangers' homes pretty quickly. You know, at the time of her arrest, she refused to talk and said she wanted an attorney. Now, there's an elephant in the room here, which we haven't talked about. And this makes more sense, but I think it can be harder in some ways for us to get our heads around. And that is addiction. It's kind of interesting to me that it it seems to be so easy at times to accept that somebody could be mentally ill and kill somebody. But when we talk about murdering somebody because of money or because of an addiction, people kind of go, I just can't believe that you would kill your husband of 30 years or 25 years or whatever over money. Well, of course, there's a difference between killing somebody for money and somebody over addiction or gambling. And I do think that anybody who can't believe that Lois could kill somebody over gambling has likely never felt the powerful pull of addiction. Gambling and addiction is such a tricky thing for so many of us. I live just up the road from a racetrack. And every year, thousands of people come in the summer to place their bets on a horse. And for most people, it's just a social and fun activity. It's enjoyed by friends and family, and it lasts for a short period of time. And the amount that is gambled involves some acceptable, predetermined amount of money that the gambler can afford to lose. And once that money has gone, the party is over. But for two and a half million Americans, what starts out as a recreational activity or something really fun kind of takes on a life of its own, and it morphs into a relentless urge to gamble despite repeatedly negative consequences or a desire to stop. So some gamblers will turn to drugs or alcohol as a way to try to cope with that sense of desperation and not knowing what to do. I interviewed one time a woman who was addicted to online video gambling, and for her, she was stealing money out of her kids' lunch, lunchbox. And she said, one day, my kids saw me taking that money and said, Mom, you can have that money if it's more important to you. And she just said that for me was just like the rock bottom. I felt like either I'm going to give this up or I'm going to kill myself. You know, about eighty percent of pathological gamblers seriously consider suicide at some point, and twenty to thirty percent actually either attempt or succeed in killing themselves. So not only is this the time, this desperation time, a time that the, the gambler is most likely to be a danger to himself or herself, it's also the time that he or she is most dangerous to other people. Again, what are we talking about? But murder, extremely unusual for somebody with a compulsive gambling or pathological gambling problem to commit murder, very unusual, but it is not unprecedented. You can find other cases where individuals have killed people for their money or they've killed people because they borrowed so much money and that person is saying, I want my money back, and they don't have it. Gambling is a very treatable disorder. And I think many of us can understand, at least intellectually, what it might feel like to be addicted and sympathize with Lois a little bit. In terms of the desperation she might have felt over no longer having access to money, she might have pulled that trigger when her back was up against the wall. But to then go on and kill one other person and potentially be planning to kill another person to cover up your crime, to then make a friend for the sole purpose of taking that person's life and stealing their identity in the hopes that person's going to help you get away, I can't in any way see that linked to a gambling problem, to depression, or to any other kind of mental health problem. So one of the things I'd like to talk about in Unmasking Your Murder is, is there any practical takeaway from this? What if you found out that your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend was hiding a gambling problem? What do you do? I think the most important thing you can do is encourage that person to get help from a professional. You can give that person all the resources they need. You cannot make somebody change. And I think one of the biggest traps sometimes that friends and family fall into is when they're trying to help that person is they end up covering for that person. Don't keep secrets. Don't hide what the other person is doing. Enlist the help of a financial advisor, a therapist, and 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 self-help resources like Gamblers Anonymous, and don't underestimate the desperation that a person can feel when their back is up against the wall, because the most dangerous person is the desperate one who has nothing to lose. Thanks for watching unmasking a murder. I look forward to your questions and comments. I look forward to your feedback below. If you like our channel, please subscribe. Hit the like button. Stay tuned next time when we unmask another murder.